Ooh, what time is it? That's right, it's Disco Fosse podcast time. So thank you for listening. Oh my goodness, this is a really cool show because we've got Noemi Graysdorf. Noemi is the VP of Marketing at Vicinity, but let me tell you, there is so much way more than just that statement that we're going to discover. First, a fantastic background that Noemi brings. She's incredibly technical for somebody who claims she's not. Uh, she comes from uh, a really fantastic historical schooling background. And on top of that, a uh, really storied background in the industry, fantastic way of telling stories and connecting it with what is valuable to people. It was a real pleasure to share time with Noemi. But before we jump in there, speaking of telling stories, I gotta tell you a fantastic story. I lost everything. I literally just, just for fun, I actually deleted a bunch of cloud resources and I said to myself, dear God, Eric, how are you gonna get that back? Easy, because I backed it up with Veeam. I'm not even just saying this because that's a sponsorship message. I literally wanted to see that this stuff worked. I've been a longtime user of Veeam software and hey, you got to keep checking. So I actually blew away a bunch of instances I had in AWS and recovered them as if by magic. But it wasn't magic. It was Veeam software. Everything you need for your data protection needs. Do it. Go check out Veeam software. Easy way to do that. Go to vee.am forward slash disco posse and you can find out all you need to know. Heck, just go to veeam.com if you need to. If you can't remember the Disco Posse part, just go there. They're really cool. I love those folks. Okay, now next up, who's got the best coffee in the world? That's right, Diabolical Coffee. Okay, maybe it's not the best in the world. Is that puffery? I don't know. In marketing, they call it puffery. Anyways, it's fantastic. It's devilishly good coffee and the most amazing swag you've ever seen in your life. Oh yeah, featuring what's about to be the best release of a limited edition shirt. Uh, it's kind of a soft launch and then it's gonna be really cool. We're doing a big splash. So come check out what will become a limited edition t-shirt only available in summer 2021 called Devil's Breath from the one and only Zine Rashidi, fantastic artist. Okay, that's the next piece. Oh, and one more thing. Hey, remember I set up a blog and I talked in a podcast and I've talked all these times about setting up your own podcast and I'll help you. In fact, if you go to my YouTube channel, I've got a big long thing on how I did my PodSafe intro and outro. And the way that I did it was I use other services like Upwork and Fiverr. So if you want to find out how to do that yourself, head on over to discopossepodcast.com. I've got a video there on how I did my PodSafe intro and links to Fiverr. Everything you need is really cool. I'm a big fan of Fiverr, longtime user. Anyways, let's get on to the show. This is Noemi Graysdorf. Enjoy. Hi, this is Noemi Graysdorf. I'm VP of Marketing at Vicinity, and I'm joining Disco Posse Podcast today. Thank you, Noemi, for for joining. This is this is neat because I I'm often introduced to folks that are in a sort of relative sphere where we you know at different areas in the industry, different areas in the organization. So I love that you've got a really cool background as to how you got to vicinity. We'll mm -hmm. talk about vicinity itself, which I think would be kind of neat for for sharing with folks who are listening. And uh, and then we'll talk about, you know, what what you're doing there, what's unique and, and neat about it, as well as, yeah, like I said, how how you got there, which is kind of cool. So, sure. uh, That's good. 
if you want, let's let's do a quick uh, do the elevator pitch, so to speak, on on vicinity and, and let people know what it is that the problem is you're tackling there. Sure. So the challenge that we're tackling is uh, as I think it was Gartner who posted recently in one of their reports that by 2025, 75% of all data being created in the enterprise is going to be at the edge. And what the edge means is that it's not in the data center. So there's two challenges there. One is we have had this ebb and flow in terms of centralization and decentralization, but predominantly key applications are still in the data center. So how do you get to the data <clears throat> that is being generated um, at the edge? Typically, uh, and traditionally, you have to move either data or you have to move the compute. Um, moving compute is very challenging, especially with complex applications uh, that require a significant amount of uh, resources. So we typically move data. And what we do is we migrate it. Um, we migrate it to the data center, and there we process it. Um, so the challenge there is the delay, right? It takes time to move data. Um, and the same time, every time you move data, obviously, you expose yourself to potential um, you know, security uh, complications with the data. Um, we oftentimes also make copies of data, whether it's cached uh, or just copies to everywhere where the application may reside or we need to process it. So now we have multiple copies. We have to create now data protection policies, security policies all around this data. And then there's times that you know, there's data sovereignty and issues around data cannot be moved, period. So that you know, creates this very fractured environment, compute environment. So that's one challenge because the results of that is that your, your insights, your business value really re relies on how quickly you can move the data. The second part, the second challenge is that we're all striving to figure out how to take advantage of the elasticity of compute and the elasticity of resources in the cloud. Everybody has sort of cloud first type of initiative. In those situations, whether you want to burst or you just want to take advantage of something in the cloud, you have to move the data into the cloud. Um, and again, it's the same delay because when you're moving over long distances, you become um, victim of the inefficiencies. Uh, you know, TCP was never designed for long distance um, data transfers uh, and data processing. So, uh, so that becomes a real challenge. So what vicinity has developed um, and we have 32 patents, one pending. This might not be a very short pitch to what we do, but <laughs> um, the gist of it is we enable applications to process data at the point of creation and at the point of, uh, at the time of creation and at the point of creation. In other words, you don't have to move data in order to consume it by applications. Um, we have enabled uh, the networking technology to be able to eliminate the intermittence of latency and the effects of latency. So once you experience that first bite, um, the rest of it feels like you're on a local area network. Now, so this now is you, the... you eliminate all that time lag required to move data and do all that other stuff. This is always a, a, a fun discussion when you once we bring the word edge in, I remember early on, like when people said edge, it was always this assumption that edge is like a raspberry Pi glued to a cell tower in a forest somewhere like that. Like, no, edge is anywhere where it's closer to the end point of consumption. And that could be a user, a group of users, a cloud area, a regional area, a data center, or 
a cell tower sitting in the forest somewhere. Who mm -hmm. knows? So when we, do you find when we talk about edge that the next thing you have to do is explain to people what an edge scenario is? Uh, or how, how are you finding the consumption of that description now in the market? Yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. Everybody has a different idea of what an edge is. Um, I think we kind of target a, a few specific use cases that make it simple. So we have a proliferation of IoT devices, and these are not just, you know, um, your nest in your home that is controlling your heat. <laughs> <laughs> these are cameras, these are sensors um, for anything and everything. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of them. I, I recently read a quote by um, a CEO in the shipping industry, I think he said that, you know, you used to be a couple of hundred maybe uh, sensors on a ship you know, transporting goods from one place to another. And now there's thousands and thousands of them and they're all generating information and data. And this data can be used for a number of reasons, different ways. For example, it could be physical security assurance. It could be um, navigational assistance. It could be um, operational efficiency, right? There's lots of different things depending on what the purpose of that is. Um, but you can't do that, right? The ship is in the middle of the ocean. You got satellite links, potentially they're really slow. Um, so then you get a, all this data coming in once you get to port, but that's already delayed, right? So the value is no longer there. So what is an edge? Realistically, it's, it's when you're far away from your compute, from where your applications reside, where you're generating the data and where you need to respond to something, right? You're delivering some kind of value, um, whether it's traffic control, whether it's, again, physical security, or, I mean, there's medical is, is booming, you know, in the healthcare industry um, with edge devices, especially sensors, you know, right. or whole body sensors, um, informing doctors exactly what's going on with you and, um, all the time. So, so yeah, um, edge, really has to come up with a few uh, specific use cases. So we focus on AI ML on one hand. Um, there's a huge one in media entertainment broadcasting um, use case. Um, we do uh, definitely make satellite links work for you. So anybody who's got a satellite or has to access uh, data or process data, ingest data over satellite, we make that possible. Um, so those are some just you know, short-term acceleration of adoption of cloud. I mean, you could be data in the data center, but you want to, you know, burst into the cloud because you want to deploy the elasticity of the compute, but you can't because the data is sitting on the prem, right? So now you can do that. You can deploy the compute in the cloud, process data without having to move it. I also got to give a shout out to two fantastic things about your company that I love. Your product names, first of all, are awesome. <laughs> I'm like a longtime cyclist and I used to be in like BMX and stuff. And so I left when I saw the name of the products like Radical X, Ultimate X. And like, this is so cool. It like sounds like a cool product. Uh, and a thing we'll get into, what, let's talk a bit more about platform and some of that, that stuff. But you very openly describe our misfit culture. So I'm going to dig into that one, but let's okay. let's spend a bit more time on the tech because I think that's that's important. So you talk about satellite and you know we talk about a couple specific use cases and it's funny, like you said, everybody has a different description of edge. And you've been very good, I think, in describing edge as a generality. 
versus most people are like an edge is when my thing can solve a problem that you've got. So I do like that you have given a much more open description of the use case. It happens to you know fit into what vicinity can do, but I appreciate that it wasn't immediately just a, I've got a hammer and I'm going to tell you what a nail is. <laughs> uh, but your, so the team and mm -hmm. the technology, what, what drew you as a group to come together to solve this problem? So it's interesting. So the Synergy has an interesting history. Um, going back a couple of decades, uh, there was, so if you think about what we do, we enable, you know, real-time access to data. And if you think of it from a government perspective who wants to know what's going on across all the different uh, theaters that they're involved in, and oftentimes, you know, it's time, life and death or yeah. however. So they actually uh, funded a research project to develop technology that would enable them really to have that real-time access to data. And, and so there was a company that was founded um, from that uh, project called Bay Microsystems. And they really provided very customized solution to predominantly government uh, entities to enable that real-time access to data. Uh, and so process in place without moving, et cetera. So um, in 2018, uh, Vicinity was incorporated as a way to commercialize all that research and all that technology and to bring this um, to the broader marketplace. Now that that's also what's what I liked about the the backstory of the general company is that this is stuff that is heavily researched. You talked about patents and and you know I don't necessarily see that as like a significant differentiator, but it shows the background to sort of the 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 tried and tested approach of like let's do the deep research as an intellectual community. Make sure that this problem is is worthy of solving have it's mm -hmm. like the whole peer review and the way that we approach research is very different and then to then take this and bring these novel you know technologies as patented capabilities into into the market is now consumer available yeah versus there's you know some some kid that goes to do a starbucks and and is tired of watching people's dogs poop in front of them so he invents you know the, the poop upper <laughs> and and like in, in incorporates it on the spot and like there's the purely this like a functional idea solved versus like the the history that comes in and now this team reactively will adapt to the real life use case and you worked at scale to start with which is also interesting like you literally I didn't work at scale. Oh, at scale, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like so, it's like they they solved a large problem, and then we've kind of you can sort of scale it yeah. down to consumerize, I guess, what what the what the use cases are, which is neat. Yep, and create more of a solution set from the technology rather than just you know present a technology to the marketplace. Yeah, and it's it's tough as it right now. Like people. The pundits will say, you know, we talk about the phrase like a technology, you know, problem looking for a solution, looking for a problem. But that's how these things need to get solved. You know, that's a cute saying to sound like people are like, you know, really nifty pundit analysts. So like, haha, you know, this is neat technology, but there's there's no real answer for it. like this is this is how stuff at this kind of scale gets solved. You don't just 
you whip it together at the at the Starbucks and and then kick the tires on it and then fire up a, a single page funnel in order to get it sold. This is a very distinct and long term problem that that had to be solved. Well, I think that you know the way that we can maybe articulate or think about it is. Um, you know, I, I worked in the data protection space for a long, long time, and we always talked about RPOs and RTOs, recovery point objective and recovery time objective. Also in relation to business continuity disaster recovery, you know, you had to know how quickly you wanted to recover and how much data you were willing to lose or how long you were willing to be down. Um, of course, nobody wants to lose anything and everybody <laughs> wants to be up and running immediately, but, you know, based on what it would cost for them to do that. Um, the pertinent uh, sort of phrase here is recovery um, time and recovery point objectives, right? It's the recovery word. Um, when you think about access to data, right, um, even in a data protection scenario, you don't want to recover. You don't want to have to have a copy or your backup data. Then you have to copy it so that the production applications can actually consume it. You just want access to that data. Right. So think more about. So the way I like to think about it more is that the problem that we're addressing is what is your access time objective for your organization? So if uh, your access time objective, in other words, the relevance of the outcomes and the relevance of data uh, will change over time. Right. So if if you're going to tell me um, that uh, there's going to be a traffic jam down the street, uh, before I get to the last exit off that highway, then that's good. That's relevant. But if you're going to tell me why I'm already stuck in traffic and I can't get off, well, man, eh, you know, that's not, not going to help me. Exactly. Not helpful at all. <laughs> no. Acutely aware of my situation. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's the same thing. So it's a concept for, for the enterprise and for the applications that are dependent on the outcome of uh, processing data, analyzing data, uh, inferencing data, um, whatever it is that we're doing with unstructured data. This is not a database application, front-end database application. Um, you are now uh, delivering the access time objective that is best served, right? So um, I guess another techie maybe example is a lot of applications used to be written with the understanding that there's going to be a delay right, in response right. when you run it. Okay, so if you accelerated this, there's a company I, I did some work for called um, PlexiStore, <coughs> excuse me. And um, what they enabled is, <laughs> it was a file system that terminated transactions in, ca in, uh, in uh, memory. It, this is a, a a lot of folks will probably actually know the name too, because this is one that, that has come up as like, an interesting problem that was needing to be solved. So yeah, certainly keep on going over that one. Yeah, so uh, so the transaction would get terminated in memory, but the file system, I mean, you have memory file systems today, but what they don't have is the ability to then tear it off into persistent storage. So PlexiStore solved that problem, right? So they could terminate in memory and then they could tear it as a tier to persistent uh, media. And you know, if you use something like NVDIMS or some kind of a persistent memory technology, uh, you could have, well, you know, DRAM speeds. So if you're doing a database application, uh, you didn't have to wait to get a response, which is what the applications were designed to wait for. 
And what was interesting is to see how the different databases you know, reacted to that technology. So one database, um, we could get down to you know, two microseconds. Wow. Right? So if you think about CPU consumption and utilization of your uh, processing power, that's like, you know, that's, that's pretty much full. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but other applications inherently had latency built in because the, they knew that they would have to wait for something to happen. Right. And so you would still, I mean, it would still, you know, something like 120 microseconds versus, you know, two microseconds. Um, but it's still an enormous improvement over something like, you know, a millisecond or two milliseconds. So it's the same concept here is that um, with access time objective is, you know, how fast, you, you know, we're used to and we've calculated in all these inefficiencies because our assumption is that we have to move something and then we have to wait and that delay is sort of built in. But what if it didn't have to be built in? Wouldn't yeah. be, you know, no delay required. This is the, it's the, the assumption that we've had effectively since the 70s is that we, we kind of built on the fact that there was these latency amongst and between tiers. And then on top, so distributed systems were not, didn't exist because it was not physically possible to distribute systems. <laughs> right. there, were, there was the speed of network was not possible. The speed of media was not possible. They didn't have message queuing. Like that was not a, it was not a thing, you know, when we had the dawn of computing and then we got further and then we developed like large centralized systems. And then we had distributed systems because now we were, the software was smart enough to know to wait as he described, right? And so we started to build this. Well, now the funny thing is we think that everything has got to be built that way. And I, I, if you get into distributed microservices architectures, you do have to be prepared to wait but the wait is no longer required. And it's, it's by a friend of mine, he's at a, a, a storage company. And he's like, he says, we actually have to introduce delay in our rights because the software can't keep up with us. So we have to slow it down in order to let the world catch up. <laughs> exactly. So the, the tech is now there to do this, but that's localized. And now you're talking about making this not just a pure low latency immediate like physical connectivity but you're going one step further and we're talking about this ato and i like this i like this new term can we define an, an ato like an access time objective like an slo a service level objective yeah and then effectively then now tighten the band on on that yep. so now the the question comes noemi what what does this do that is different, you know, in, you know, when the market, when it didn't exist in the market, you know, we talk about the speed of connectivity, you know, when you talk mm -hmm. about synchronous database rights, we talk about synchronous rights that are doing through tiers, just didn't exist before. So what's the, what's the, the sweet secret sauce goodness that's, that's, that's patented. So of course I could go, go deep digging through the patents and we could unpack it a bit, but. <laughs> Let's make it more English. <laughs> so the, the gist of it is uh, when the original researchers and developers uh, looked at, uh, you know, TCP is not a um, efficient protocol, as we all know, when it gets into high latency, because it was really designed for accuracy and for integ data integrity. Um, 
and we could argue at a cost for timeliness, right? For 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 uh, throughput. And then we have UDP, which is um, well, it's a broadcast protocol. So I mean, you can you can add some things, and it does improve. But when you start going over higher latency, um, it also has significant delays. So you get 20, 30% improvement over what you get uh, with uh, TCP. But in both cases, you can't do anything. It's not fast enough to actually process in place. So you can move data with UDP faster than you could with TCP, but you still have to move the data. Um, so what they uh, thought about is more of the um, RDMA protocol, which was used in high performance computing, right? right. It's memory to memory. So uh, it's very, very low latency, but it cannot be stretched over networks. So it has a limitation. Um, so they took RDMA and all the patents are around enabling to stretch that protocol um, across the WAN. So it's a layer two uh, secure tunnel. It's a point to point solution, um, which enables us to do all sorts of interesting things around security. Um, of the data, but it's uh, it's leveraging RDMA, and I the way I say it, it's encapsulated in vicinity uh, patents. Right. And then it's yeah, given, you know. Obviously, so there's always the weird thing too when you tell people like it's you can read the papers, you can see the structure by how it's created, and they're like, can't somebody just copy it? Like, sure, go for it. <laughs> you know, like this is there's a lot more than just like. In fact, exposed, you know, patents are fantastic for companies because they're like. We're literally airing out precisely the method that we've right. attached to this. How we do it is known. No one has been able to do it, even when they presumed that it could be done. And that's that's the secret sauce, right? It's yeah, in the exactly. code. It's, there is proprietary IP that's that's you know either under or above it in this you know depending on the case. Yep. Right? Yep. Yep. So it's you know it's they created a bookend approach, which means. You have to have vicinity instances on both ends that are communicating with each other. So the application and the data, you know, those ends have to communicate. But it's not limited one to one. You can do one to many. You can do many to many. You can do many to one. So it's just a matter of, you know, then you get into implementation, configuration, etc. Um, but you do need to have vicinity on both ends. And there's, you know, the opportunities for this technology is just, I mean, immense. Which is what attracted me to the company in the first place. Absolutely. Well, if the only places that this method has been used is for passive data, I mean, and this goes back to sort of the data domains and the early sort of mm -hmm. back appliances, stuff that was being done in WAN acceleration, primarily for like just simple user level transactions to back end systems because of very low, you know, low bandwidth, high latency network. Mm -hmm. So it's mostly like HTTP. Uh, some, you know, SMB, but it was like generally always passive workload connectivity. What you're talking about is literally being able to do active and system to system connectivity, which is, you know, the exponential leap from all the use cases that have been tried and, and tackled. And still, you know, to this day, as people are still trying to solve that problem, even with different ways of, of attacking the technology. Yeah, the, the it's an it's an interesting thing that you bring up in terms of you know passive um, versus active because in the in, in all the ways we have we've really all the innovation and all the technology has really been focused on how do I move data faster and how do I give access to data 
by moving it faster or caching it faster, right? Or caching it better, more intelligently with prefetching and, and things like that. Um, but even with WAN acceleration, it, it's dependent a lot on both deduplication, compression, and caching. And as you can imagine, if data was already encrypted or compressed or deduped, you're kind of, you know, not Results really. may vary, as they say. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> one way to put it, right? Um, and the same thing with caching, right? If you had a very predictable workflow and workload, you could arguably say, okay, data created, I know that I'm going to be processing it in the next, you know, however long I'm going to move it and, you know, cache it close. Now we're going to assume that you can move it quickly. So there is still a lag, right? Because you have to move it. But um, let's just say, you know, you prefetch it, you make it available and it goes. Well, what happens if your workflow is not as predictable? right, then caching becomes a lot more complicated and much more expensive because you either have to have a much bigger cache to cache more stuff um, or your, you know, your accuracy is going to go down. So um, with vicinity, because of what it is, uh, as a platform, we don't really care what data you send. In other words, what data we need to access. It, it can be already encrypted. It can be deduped. It could be compressed. It's still going to have the same result, regardless of any of those things. And this is, if for anybody that's watched Silicon Valley, we we know like in encrypting, you know, encrypted data and like data that can't be compressed is seriously problematic. You talked about network, you know, broadcast networks and stuff, and satellite connectivity. This is a huge, huge problem. Uh, these are this is data that just when you go to all those deduplication vendors and they say like oh we can get twenty five to one like really on on what Notepad documents Word <laughs> documents how can yeah. I'm sending seventeen terabyte video files in raw format and they're like I can get you about one point zero zero one to one on that stuff like. Okay, so stop telling me about your twenty-five to one, please. Because <laughs> I always used to get blamed and be like, "Well, you've got you've got bad data. That's the problem." Like, "Oh, sure, blame the data." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why that technology really uh, took off in uh, the data protection space, right? Where you had repetitive because it was file-based um, backup, so the same data was you know constantly over and over. So there, you could have really high dedupe um, rates. The same thing with virtualization, right? You can have virtual machines running the same OS, you can get a huge deduplication ratio. But yeah, when you get into kind of unique uh, instances of data, um, video file, audio files, images, um, which is actually, I think, where majority of the data is going, becomes like, it becomes a lot more you know, difficult to apply those techniques. And even, you know, as we introduce faster networks, it doesn't actually solve the problem because as fast as 5G becomes a reality, the workloads are already queued up waiting. Like we, once we announce that 5G is a potential, all the vendors out there are like, all right, 5G is coming. Let's, let's open the doors on this. And, and they change the pattern of the way their software works. So the moment 5G is a reality, 
no one will notice because we've already caught up to it before it even arrived. Yeah. And I mean, the, the speed of the network is really important. Um, I think that when talking about long distance, though, um, and I learned this a long time ago, even in, in storage, because that's my background is storage, is that latency, nobody talks about latency or very few people talk about latency. Right. But that is the biggest culprit for inefficiency. I mean, whether you're talking about processing in, in memory or processing over distance or storage, access to all of it, it's, it's latency. And even with faster networks, distance is distance. And, uh, you know, you can only do so much with latency. I mean, we haven't figured out how to, what is it, uh, the wormhole technology? What was it? Like, right, yeah, yeah. Um, pop on the other side of the universe. Um, I don't think we've um, figured that part of physics yet, so. No, sadly, uh, while we think that Einstein might not be 100% right, he was mostly right. And we haven't actually, and where he's not right is not in around basic latency. It's around really in, impressive stuff at a significant <laughs> scale. But yes, yeah, so like I said, this no matter how you slice it, I, I did disaster recovery and, and BCP. It's funny, you talked about this. You thought edge is hard to explain to some people. Like I, I worked around constantly educating just even rpo and rto trying to explain yeah. okay so your rpo is five minutes for the system like okay good gotcha all right it's gonna take us two hours to recover that they're like wait a second i thought you just <laughs> <laughs> i thought you said it was five minutes you're like no no it's recovery point objective like but what's the two hours I'm like it takes us two hours because of other things that are dependent systems or whatever they're like so in two hours it will be five minutes behind and I'm like, right, from the point where it failed, they said, so it's technically two hours and <laughs> one hour and 55 minutes behind. But, and it was like, and and like you said, everybody wants zero. They want RPO of zero, RTO of zero, mm -hmm. and they have a budget of zero. <laughs> <laughs> That's very accurate. That is very accurate. And, and I have had to have those conversations quite often. Um, you know, how much data do you want to lose is your RPO? And how fast do you need to have your application up and running is your RTO. And in disaster recovery scenario, um, that was always a, a, a much more difficult thing to discuss than in the backup scenario, right? The right. data protection RPO and RTO is mostly around how often you want to do your backup, so how much data loss you have, with the assumption that you can bring that, you know, you can restore the individual uh, piece of data. It's really about uh, business continuity and disaster recovery, where recovery time objective becomes, you know, critical. Um, I think as we move more and more into this, you know, data-rich, data-driven AI, ML, analytics, and just distributed environment, I think, you know, I think we need to start talking more about, you know, access to data, not just recovery of data. For sure, it's it's the new batch versus real time, right? It it is very much this next, you know, shift in the way that we talk about workload consumption, because these are where systems consume data, not people, and Correct. they are the primary consumers, and then those systems have endpoint consumers. But yes, uh, that mid tier of consumption by systems from other systems is where 
That's where businesses are differentiating right now. That's why Amazon is different because they solved a problem that no one cared to solve because they were worried about what the website looked like and what the dropping in the truck, you know, at the end of the driveway looked like. Amazon's like, we're going to solve the logistics problem. And right. that vastly differentiated them from the rest of the world because of how they did that. Well, they're still having, uh, interestingly enough, uh, one part that they haven't solved is how to get data into their cloud fast enough so they can start uh, generating revenue. So there's a huge backlog. And I mean, Amazon is just AWS is one, but there's uh, the challenge of how do you get data? I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, we're getting into two gigabit, um, you know, there's 40 gigabit, 100 gigabit um, networks, but uh, let's just look, you know, even a one gigabit, just typical one gigabit um, link, you'd think you'd be able to move 120 megabytes per second. You know, one would line, believe. <laughs> one would believe. That's line speed. Um, but once you get into uh, latencies of 40 plus, or even, even less than 40, um, you're lucky if you can get 10 to 12. And top that off just with, of course, just general protocol communication. Like it's not as what we're sending a raw hunk of data, even when you explain that to folks who are like, so I've got a hundred megabyte file. It might break it down. It's going to take this long. Like, well, no, remember there's packet headers and then there's ER, there's CRCs and error checking and then there's latency. And, you know, yeah. so in, in the end, once you, once you lay that out, you realize like, oh, wow. Okay. Now I get it. And then you say, right. okay, now the consuming system on the other side of this is using real-time machine learning to generate inference in order to generate data that it's sending back. How, how do you think that's going to go? <laughs> <Right>? this, <laughs> is, this is where I'm like, I like these vicinity folks. I think they're going to be pretty, they're going to be doing some pretty neat stuff. <laughs> yep. That, that's true. I, I think people don't really uh, sort of, they don't think about it. They think, oh, you know, I have 10 gigs and it's going to move really, really fast. But, you know, when you get into WAN traffic, um, with TCP, you know, you're lucky if you can get 10% throughput. Um, and you can't, and, you know, the further you go, the less efficient it is because, you know, again, TCP is really designed for accuracy and integrity and, you know, it's a lossless protocol. So, uh, yeah, it makes it really difficult. I mean, you can't process anything over TCP over distance. You have to move the data. Yeah. but And this is it. Like, most of the use cases where this is, where it needs to be solved the most are in over the air like this is satellite this is this is not line rate firing across the undersea cables this is south american mines that yeah. have nothing but a couple of towers on a, on big hills in mm -hmm. order to move data back and forth yet they need to move the processing there cuz they're making real time decisions in how they run their business and the the data center is in, you know, even if it, they're lucky, it's in the Sao Paulo region of AWS, as an example, or, you know, whatever. But still, it's far away from where that local environment is. And so this is why, you know, that, that line speed is no longer something you can live with. No, I mean, if it takes you 22 hours to move a terabyte, uh, and terabytes is not a lot of data these days. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, every time you move a terabyte, 22 hours, that's 22 hours of potential productivity, uh, potential 
um, moving forward on a project, um, getting the accuracy right, whether you're mining or drilling or um, I mean, this is this is not just in those industries. It's across many, many industries. Right. Um, it's um, I had this conversation recently with someone in the life sciences space. And there's a consortia um, of entities. Uh, they're procuring this super. I mean, these are like multi, multi-million dollar um, machines that are going to be used for experimentation in uh, life sciences research. And so uh, they're collaborating. So they're going to get, let's say, two of them in two different locations. There's three or four of them. And so they're all at a far distance. And one of the use cases that was brought up, uh, one of the challenges is if you're running an experiment in these time, these experiments often run for hours and sometimes even days, that you want to make sure uh, that the data you're getting out of them is, is good data, right? Not junk. Um, and you want to catch if they are miscalibrated in some way. You want to catch that as soon as possible. So for them, having that remote access to the data as it comes off uh, these machines to be able to say, yeah, this is good. This is you know, good data versus bad data can save them days, hours, you know, potentially weeks because you know, they're lined up pretty tight in terms of um, experiments being run. So if you miss your timeline, you have to recalibrate to do it. You've just missed your window. Now you got to wait till the next time. And, um, you know, the cost of research, the cost of everything goes up. It's terrible in that, like, we have, again, the sort of this, as consumers, we just, you just kind of assume that a lot of stuff just should work. But like, especially at that level, I remember, you know, through my own, you know, my day-to-day -day work, you know, helping folks with their doing in, in stuff with like life sciences and medical research. And they're like, no, no, we... Like you understand, this is like hands-off technology because if anything goes wrong, if we lose one minute of data, it is four months of replay. It's not, you can't just pick up where it left off. Like they have to, and this is obviously we're getting better. We're tightening some of the time, but no matter how much you tighten it up, it's more than zero. And yeah. in a competitive space where they're in, where they're competing against each other, or competing against a pandemic. Yeah. Every second counts. And that's true. I mean, that, that's true across so many different um, segments of the market. You know, um, whether you have, uh, you know, your news organization or a broadcast company or media entertainment, you know, you're creating content and it's created here. Um, but in order to accelerate processing, uh, you know, the dailies, for example, you know, you want to do that quickly. You might have to have some resources on, on, on site, but then you have to somehow transfer the data. You know, you still have to move it. And then you have to, you know, to post-production facility. Um, you know, they want to use the cloud. But anyways, so there's, there's so many different uh, instances. Um, across all industries, you know, you get into manufacturing, you get into um, energy exploration, mining. Yeah, medical is a huge, healthcare is a huge industry for for that. So yeah, well, it's cool stuff. It, it is wild. And so I'll say, let's talk about the minds behind it. When you When you have a big problem, that has a small window of of chance to be solved, and you 
you just say like they laser focus on that one and you describe your your misfit culture which i love let's dig into what what about vicinity makes this this team want to do this and also how are they doing it and, and being successful at it so the team that is in place now uh is uh was recently brought in um probably starting last year um and you know the goal is really to put it on the map uh, you know the company was incorporated and launched really in 2018 we're in 2021 and you know when you ask oh have you heard of vicinity because we do something really unique um most folks don't know who we are so we have a little bit of a challenge ahead of us in terms of um, building awareness, educating the market. I still go back and uh, reference when I was, um, you know, back in 2004, when when uh, Data Domain, I think, first came out, 2003, 2004, uh, with their first uh, version of their of their product. And I remember I was in sales, <clears throat> solution architect, and um, I went to one of the customers, and uh, we did a big consulting project, re, you know, redesigning their data protection um, environment. And I said, well, you know, there's this really cool technology and here's what it does and this is why, you know, you should look at it. And we spent more than an hour trying to explain to them what is deduplication, why you don't lose data using it, what are hashes, how it, you know, reconstitutes, how it does this, how it does that. You know, it was it was an uphill battle to some extent because it was something that people didn't really know. What is deduplication? And I feel that um, we're in the same kind of position now where we're trying to say, um, just like we had to explain how, that deduplication is for real, right? right yeah. And um, it works as advertised when, you know, within the confines, of course, um, that our technology too is very new. It's different. Uh, it's unique. And then it does work and it does solve a real problem for people because the first reaction typically is like, oh, this must be like, no way. <laughs> I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Um, so, so there's a little bit of an uphill challenge. And I think that um, the, the team that is in place now is very much focused on educating the market and uh, being laser focused on getting the message out um, and working with customers on, on, you know, the appropriate use cases. The challenge we've got is that when you're selling anything and humans are the people you're selling it to is that humans especially technologists have a disturbingly high pain tolerance i, I describe this to people i'm like you'd be surprised at what we're willing to do you know ask any nerd how they set up their home stereo audio <laughs> equipment and they'll tell you about like cable lengths like all this crazy stuff they went through you know you're like i could get the exact same thing out of this this box whatever and they're like I like cutting my cables by hand. It takes me three weeks to do it, but I've, there's something about this tech tactile feel experience. You're like, these are the people I have to sell enterprise software to. I'm going <laughs> to go hungry. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there's a lot of, I mean, there's some of that. Um, I guess lucky for us, it's not something that anybody else can do. Right. Um, but accepting it and, 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 you know, you say, well, just leave the data 3,000 miles away and uh, just process it like where it sits, you know? Yeah. What? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, 
it's it's a little bit of an uphill battle, but um, I think we're in a good position to um, make a push for it. No, and and I think the industry is is ready uh, as well because the use cases are active and they're real. The tough part when you have stuff like this that is going to be a fundamental shift in the way a technology and a solution can be generated and what business value can be gotten from using that technology. When it's a big shift like that, it's it's tough. Like just general awareness is one thing, but teaching them that to be self-aware that they have this problem and that they are then willing to bet on a new company to solve that with them. It's a, it's a lot of, of interesting things. And look, you know, on the other side of it, we could name dozens of companies just out the back of our, our, our hand, right? We, that they at one point said, so no one's, so why do you call the company Oracle? I don't understand that. Like whatever it's going to be, there's some Larry Ellison was in a room going, I'm telling you, there's a bloody better way to do this. (laughs) You know, you're, you're at this neat point right now, Noemi, where, you know, a combination of team industry now growing awareness and readiness. Uh, You know, I, I see definite, you know, high potential for you. I do too. Otherwise I wouldn't be here. That's it. So I got to dig into your story a little bit. So first of all, your you talk about your your VP of marketing today. You're mm-hmm. incredibly technical. You talked about being a solutions architect in the past. You've got a strong technical background, which seems like a natural foray from studying history. Uh, so let's let's connect the dots over over <laughs> your life and uh, what brought you to where you are today, and 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 how did this journey begin? It was an accident. I think <laughs> a complete accident. Um, I was, um, I don't, you know, I've always been a big fan of liberal arts education in general. Obviously, I have a history and uh, a literature degree. Um, and when I graduated college, at first I thought, no, I'll go to grad school, this, that. I tried a lot of different things, ended up in, um, in telecommunications, sort of, um, as a side and then went to grad school and got an MBA. And um, it helped me kind of um, explore new different opportunities uh, and and sections. So um, I got lucky. I was uh, brought into a a company called Genuity um, and um, ended up in a product strategy group and uh, back in 2000 was asked to write a uh, market requirements document for storage services. This is the time of, you know, storage networks and storability and giant loop and all those um, companies who are trying to do sort of what cloud does, but not exactly. Um, So we had our data centers and we had uh, hosters, you know, we were hosting um, applications and and infrastructure. and that's how I got introduced to storage. It was, you know, just somebody handed me. It's like, well, we need somebody to write this um, MRD. So go figure it out. <laughs> um, and uh, I did, I guess. Um, and uh, I stayed in storage after that, just um, going from, you know, product management uh, to startup in, uh, you know, data protection space with virtual tape libraries, um, then into sales and solution architecting. Um, 
And it was one of my colleagues who said to me, you know, you're, you're really good at explaining things. Uh, maybe you should uh, maybe you should consider being an analyst. Like, oh, OK, sure. Why not? So I went and became an analyst <laughs> um, for a number of years. And then um, so it's been yeah, it's been an interesting um, not not exactly the traditional path. I, that's the best path, because I think this is. When you look at folks who've taken the non-traditional routes, I think that's where you find, you know, first of all, you're an incredible person to to share time with. I, I could do this for hours and then we could go into a, probably an incredible array of background topics. And that's what I love is when you can connect with people and because they understand like their storytelling and, and connecting. Technology is a particularly interesting space because your i mean i don't necessarily know like other industries directly but i can say this like we have to have this thing of like positive business outcomes and then in the middle you've got to sell it to the people that become your champions and your users you know and all of this stuff that goes on in between and connecting value to technology and we always get told as you know in storage right don't get hung up on the speeds and feeds then followed by spending two hours explaining the speeds and feeds to people. Because <laughs> that's, that's actually a differentiating capability with the, you know, how we tackle some of this stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it, I think that uh, throughout the industry, it's really challenging <clears throat> for, uh, for us to step away and not focus on the speeds and feeds because that's where, you know, that's the natural sort of um, point of migration. That's where everybody sort of goes right away. I have to say, I, I, I think, I'd like to think that uh, my background in liberal arts is what gives me sort of willingness and desire um, to take a little bit of a different route. I like to tell a story, you know, make it sort of personal, um, put a little humor in it if I can get away with it. <laughs> um, because, you know, when you start reading, um, you know, whether it's a data sheet or solution brief, um, after a while, you know, they all sound the same. They all start the same. They all sound similar. Um, you know, we all do the same thing. We give you this value, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it rarely connects with you at that personal level, you know, where it gives you a little giggle or maybe you just uh, remember it just a little bit better because, you know, it said something that you could relate to. I, I, it is incredibly powerful to be able to put that, and it's a rare, it's a surprisingly rare capability to do that. And, you know, you may not even necessarily realize it because you've developed it. Some of it is born and most of it is nurtured generally because we learn from watching it happen before us. And, you know, and I, I often tell people like you, you one of the, the greatest sort of storytellers as far as like brand recognition uh, is a fellow named uh, Donald Miller and he's a thing called StoryBrand. And it's actually something I, I use. It's fantastic. And it's this whole idea of like in one line, can you explain what what you do and not like, well, so what we do is we like, you know, you, you like don't get into the what you do. But you're like, you know, everybody has this problem where you, you have two 
two-story houses and the toilets, one's on top of the other. Well, <laughs> we invented this thing called the toilet reroute it, so that the person on the bottom never has to understand what the person on top's doing. Like, and that's that's the story of the toilet router. It, it, like, it sounds so funny and it, like we sort of throw it away sometimes as a joke, but like that's that's how we have to do it. And like you said, you read data sheets and white papers and press releases. God help us with the press releases today. <laughs> you know, world leading, whatever, first to announce. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly the same first paragraph, middle paragraph, executive quote, followed by customer quote, followed by second executive quote. You know, for more information, go to the media page. <laughs> it's like, it's just the same thing over and over again. I think it's only meant for PR people to sort of satisfy that, like that machines existed for a long time. It used to be literally like, dee, 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 like the little teletype <laughs> wire would be hammering out something in a remote location. And uh -huh. quick, the Associated Press would be like ripping it off. That like, quick, look at that. Something just happened in Boston. Uh, <laughs> That's exactly but, it. But to be able to not just differentiate in technology, but differentiating in helping someone care about what you do. That's a pretty cool thing. And have fun with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, at some point, it all comes back to, um, you know, why should you care how fast you access your data? Well, like I said, you know, you're on a highway and you want to know that there's a traffic jam and that you can actually exit now or when you're stuck in traffic already. Um, you know, just as a simple example, there's lots of those kind of stories we can all um, sort of tell. Um, there was, uh, I was, uh, I remember I was writing something and I thought to myself, well, how do you really convey the idea of data relevance or any kind of re relevance, um, and relevance of value at a point in time? All, you know, you can get very technical about it, but, and, uh, the one way I came up with, see how it works, is the value of your bandwidth, reliability of your network is more valuable while you're watching a movie or playing video games than when you're sleeping. That's the relevance, right? That's the relevance point. Yeah. Or time relevance. And it's like to find those analogies, it's, it's uh, I worked with a fellow, he was our, our development uh, team leader uh, and it was so funny we used to always joke we had a, I in the, we joked about it because he was so overt with it every time he'd say something he'd be like you know so Alex how are we going to get this into work he goes imagine you're in a restaurant and you're like oh jeez and he goes <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> so we would always joke and everybody's like hey the internet's down to like imagine for a moment that you're a subway driver and he's like no 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 like but it was in the end, he was so fantastic at connecting you to what the real problem is through the way you do it. Just every once in a while, he got a little hung up on the story. But it was so funny that now that I read and just even like just the simplest example that you gave, it's so elegant in its simplicity. But 99.x percent of the population cannot create that simplicity. Never and that way, but. What was the old Mark Twain thing? Is if I had more time, I'd have written a shorter note. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great quote. I'm going to have to uh, remember that one. Brevity is brevity with detail is an incredible challenge. And 
making it relatable is one of the best ways to do that, especially as like not just in the written text that goes on a website, but yeah, when you get in front of somebody and explain what you do and and how it helps them and and who else it helps as well. It's uh, it's good. So I'm excited. Now, this is the other thing, too. I'd love to to get your thoughts and listen with me. How how do we as humans and people that are looking to get into technology or technical marketing or, you know, these different parts of the organization, how do we how do we pick this up? Right? Like you talked about you've always enjoyed that you you choose a liberal arts as your education. So if we've got folks that are you know, sort of tried and true technologists and that they're learning, I learned Java on the weekend, that kind of person, like what's the way that we can help them to become storytellers? You know, uh, that's a really challenging uh, task or a challenge, uh, a big challenge um, because Everything that you do uh, requires practice. So nobody, I mean, yes, there are people who are uh, fantastic storytellers. Um, but for majority, uh, like 99% of the population, I think that just like in writing, you know, nobody uh, wakes up one morning and is a fantastic writer. Um, you know, some people are better than others, but to get better, you have to practice. Um, and I think the storytelling is the same thing. You need to practice. Um, the reality is that, you know, if you're the, the technologist who is reading books on Java, um, you're probably not practicing storytelling right. and it's probably not an interest to you either. Um, so if we, I guess, require everybody to tell a story or to try to con you know, try to convey that. But I guess at the same time, maybe that's why we have, um, you know, people who uh, try to present the technology um, in a story sort of format so that people can consume it. And then there's those who sit and write code. Um, right. You know, maybe they don't have to tell a story. Um, maybe they just need to write really good code. Yeah, and I, I guess it's the... It's the magic of teams and communities is that we don't all need to do everything. And my the singer in my band one day, he was like trying to teach our bass player how to sing. He's like, look, it's easy. And like I'm like, Bill, you have no idea what you just said and how wrong it is. And it's easy. <laughs> it's a skill that you've worked on as a trade for a decade and more right you probably did choir as a kid and you're here you're 22 years old and you're fantastic vocalist like disturbingly good mm -hmm. so of course it seems easy you know and he's just like like there's physical boundaries from somebody else being able to do what you do that took require years of training and even with years of training maybe you can't maybe pete should just play bass <laughs> And that's fantastic like that. And that's what uh, part of it is like, I guess what, for the folks that want to get into product management and product marketing, mm -hmm. there are good ways we can connect them and introduce them to storytelling and practice. And then it's important to understand that there are going to be folks that are raw technologists, you know, code creators, 
their creative mind is very different. Mm-hmm. So I'm, and I'm impressed by all of it. Like I just, I sit there and I think that I'm a smart person and I start typing in code and I realize like the wall comes fast and, and quickly <laughs> on how far <laughs> I can get. But that's why you find a, a co-creator, you know, uh, somebody yep. who can do code. And then you, you find the, the shim between the two of you where you can say, I'm going to describe a user story now. And they take that and they turn it into code and it's, it's in product and usability. It's, it's actually quite amazing. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if we were all sort of good at everything, I don't think it would be as interesting. Um, you know, so I don't think I ever want to write code. <laughs> and I'm going to say on your behalf, I bet you've written more code than most people, and you could. You're just given that your understanding of it, you'd be surprised at how far you'll get. But I've have so I also have an incredible respect for the fact that you've set that boundary that you don't you don't want to, nor do you believe that. Like, so it's it's a very beautiful respect that you give to a code creator that you've set your line that I don't think I'm gonna want to do this. <laughs> No, no. I think it's good to have, um, you know, people who are good at what they do and what they enjoy doing um, and to collaborate. I'm I'm big into collaborating and sharing ideas. um, So I think that's a much more productive um, longer term because if, you know, yeah. I think we're you know, at a beautiful point, at least now where the world is sort of, I'll say reopening and, and we're going to reconnect in, in ways that we haven't been able to for quite a while. And I, I think people will have a greater appreciation for that collaboration and through the way that we've changed the pattern of work and society for now, you know, 18 plus months. I I really hope that we take some fantastic lessons from the way we had to readjust, you know, the way we collaborate, and now we're going to merge them together. And, and it's, I'm excited. And Noemi, I mean, looking at what you can do, um, I wish you. I say I wish you luck, but I know it's not luck because it's it's luck is that the amount of work you put into it increases your exposure to luck. And and you are and you have been increasing your exposure to luck for a long time and, and doing it well. Uh, so thank you. The vicinity team is in good hands, and I look forward to catching up as we get further into the year. And you know, Absolutely. hopefully, get some more of those more of those press releases. There you go, August twenty twenty one. Today, Boston <laughs> announced vicinity does amazing things. Well, hopefully we will be able to announce some amazing things. Um, But in the meantime, we will focus on execution. Definitely. Well, and it's funny, I, one of the most recent published uh, podcasts that published uh, was an amazing woman named Michelle Seiler Tucker. And she is in the business of buying and selling businesses and helping people to create, Hmm. you know, uh, strength in business in order to exit successfully especially for like buying up distressed businesses and, and helping them to, you know, find sort of maximal value and protect everybody. And the one thing that she talked about was that companies that are less than 10 years old are having a significantly higher success rate than incumbent 10 plus year companies. So really? this whole sort of 
this trope of, you know, 90% of startups fail or 95, whatever the number is that we throw on, she's actually completely reversed. In fact, 70% of incumbent businesses are at a failure rate right now. And 30% of startups under 10 years are failing. According what did she say was the reason? So did she explain why? It's uh, it, partly because they're the rethink of work patterns uh, the economics are different in that we can access cloud computing, software as a service. So getting a business up and running now, depending on like, there's obviously some, you know, what are the size of those businesses? You know, how much of them are just uh, Amazon affiliate people, whatever, like, but in general, according to the small business administration in the U S statistically, the numbers are an inversion to what we've been told for a long time. And the funny thing is that, you know, they're not sexy sounding numbers that way. So no one, everybody likes the 95% failure as if it's like, aha, we're going to do amazing things. You're like, no, actually in David versus Goliath, as, as Gladwell said, Goliath never stood a chance. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, it was David that has the most to lose. And it was kind of funny that now, as we look at, you know, you said at your age of the company, where you are, you know, I, I do see some fantastic press releases coming soon. Well, um, you, I will absolutely be back in touch with you as soon as we're ready to um, to announce. And so for folks, if they want to connect, of course, we can go, I'll have links to to the vicinity site. Uh, easy to find It's V-C-I-N-I-T-Y. That's always the neat thing when, when it's like slightly different spelling than, than hmm? one would, would expect. Uh, and Noemi, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way if they want to get in touch? Uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter. It's uh, G-R-E-Y-Z-D-N on Twitter. That's my handle. Um, or on LinkedIn. Um, or, you know, post on the LinkedIn vicinity site. Um, the easiest way to do that. And I hope to hear from folks. For sure. No, and definitely. So there you go. Folks, reach out. There you go. It's, tell them that you're that they're they're listening. It's always this, the hard part to is I'm like, people will there's nothing worse. They're gonna to listen to 98% of it, then they're gonna tap out and like, oh no, like Naomi's a fantastic person. You need to learn from her. <laughs> so but thank you very much for for sharing the uh, time today. I really um, enjoyed it. It's a really nice conversation. Thank you, Eric.